Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review. My name is Jason Lazarus, your host. This podcast is for and about trial lawyers. We'll tell the stories of trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. And this will be about their stories and about their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer Review. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Review is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. My day job is CEO of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues at settlement like healthcare lien resolution, Medicare secondary payer compliance, public benefit preservation, and complex settlement planning. Joining me on Trial Lawyer View today is Bob Langdon, a veteran trial attorney and leading products liability catastrophic damages attorney with Langdon and Emerson in Missouri. Uh, Bob has been inducted as a fellow in the International Academy of Trial Lawyers and has been recognized with some of the United States' highest honors for attorneys. His leadership in the profession has led him to serve as an executive board member for the Attorneys Information Exchange Group, AIEG, as president of the Missouri Association of Trial Lawyers and a member of the Board of Governors of AAJ. He lives in Parkville, Missouri and has seven children. Uh, Bob, welcome to the program. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I want to give you a, a, a moment just to talk a little bit about your firm and your practice in particular to start off. Well, we... I've been at this about 47 years, and so I started out uh, with a congressman uh, in the firm, and he uh, eventually withdrew from the firm, and then Kent and I formed, over 30 years ago, formed a a law practice. Uh, I started out doing everything. We did divorces, uh, real estate. I could always tell when the bars closed because that's when your divorce clients would call you, ask how their case is doing and uh, wasn't doing very well at the time. But uh, we started getting more PI uh, work, and so that evolved into that. And we finally had to make a decision that uh, we either had to go into PI work or just continue to do a mass types of different law practice. And so we decided that it was time for us to concentrate. And so it was difficult, but we had to tell our, all our other clients that we weren't only taking personal injury work. And then that led to us um, really kind of an interesting case called McDowell versus Kawasaki was our first products case. It was a a motorcycle case, and uh, we had good luck with that, and and it just grew from there. And your your firm is is pretty diverse in terms of locations. Can you talk about where you guys are and and where your practice is? Um, Yeah, we started out in a small town called Lexington, Missouri, which is about 50 miles uh, east of Kansas City, and um, then we ended up opening an office in uh, Kansas City and St. Louis, and we even have an office in Chicago that uh, by appointment uh, we, we serve. We have a lot of cases in, in Chicago, and so there are not, not many people doing products work, and there's only a few in Chicago, so uh, we've been called on and asked to help other law firms uh, in that area quite a bit. So. It's just, uh, it just, those are the kind of the four areas that we're at. But we, 
we've tried cases from coast to coast um, you know, all over the United States. Yeah, it's pretty incredible looking at your results and, and where you guys have uh, worked with other attorneys and co-counsel relationships. How has that sort of developed over time working and all over the place with other attorneys when they've got these complex products liability cases? I actually kind of enjoy trying cases in other venues, and uh, we've had uh, very good, uh, been well received by juries and the judges, and uh, I've only had a few hiccups uh, in 47 years trying cases in other states, but uh, it, it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's kind of fun to go to different places, Burlington, Vermont. Uh, we've tried a case up there, I've tried them in Baltimore, I've tried them in Seattle, and uh, Rancho Cucamonga, California. So we've tried them uh, in Florida, all, just all over. And um, it's just kind of fun to see different parts of the country and different juries and um, and how they react. So it's, uh, uh, it's people are, are people and, and they want to do what's right in most instances. And so uh, if you've got a, a case that really is, is has a lot of merit to it and a client that's a, a good client, uh, you're going to do fine. So I wanted to talk about your family for a moment. You know, there's uh, listeners that I'm sure are, are more junior and starting out in their practices. And I know family is incredibly important to you. You've got seven children. How do you balance a successful law firm with, you know, making sure that you're there for your family, that, that family time protecting it? I made a decision early on that uh, when I wasn't, doing practicing law, I was going to be with my family. So we take our family with us uh, and have taken our family with us to every time we go to seminars, whether it's uh, Missouri Trial Lawyers or AIG or, uh, or or AAJ, we take our family with us and so that they can share the experience as well. So they, they've grown up knowing other lawyers' kids all over the state and all over the country. Uh, and so I just made up my mind I wasn't going to join a bunch of organizations and and um, we just, we just, when we, when I'm not in working on the law, I'm working with my family and, and being with my family and, and enjoying them. So I've got two uh, of my girls are lawyers and, and practice law. And so it's, um, we have a lot in common there. And so um, it's just been, I've got three in college right now. So uh, hopefully those days will be done for too long. And, uh, I've got, we feel like empty nesters. We only have one left so, and at home, but uh, he keeps us laughing and keeps us young. Yeah, I've got three. My youngest is in college and uh, two that are out, but I can't, I cannot imagine a family of seven and balancing that with, with, a, with the kind of schedule that you have to keep, particularly when you're in trial and all that. So it's, it's great that you've been able to balance all of that. I want to back up and talk a little bit about what led you to become a trial lawyer and, and even maybe go to law school. I know for myself, I didn't have any family members that were lawyers. Both my parents didn't didn't even go to college. So, you know, for me, I didn't even I didn't have that, you know, sort of role model to, to decide which way to go. Curious about what what led you down your path. Well, it's a, it's kind of a funny story. Um, I was I was the first. Uh, class that was in the uh, lottery draft. And so um, I tell my children, uh, TV went off at midnight when I was growing up. Uh, and it just didn't have any after that. So 
I was uh, student teaching at the time. I was a senior, uh, and so I was student teaching. So they were uh, having the lottery. And so I knew that if my number was 180 or lower, I was going to be in Vietnam. Uh, and so I, a student taught or had a meeting that night. I didn't get home, and TV was off by the time I got home. And so I had to wait the next morning to go out and pick up the, the newspaper to find out where I was going to do with the rest of my life. And so I couldn't find it, couldn't find it, kept going down, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. Finally, it was, I found it at 329. Uh, the irony of it was in January, there were more than 20 plus days over 300. So they just dropped the balls in and they didn't stir them. And it was a huge uh, stink about it. They wanted to redraw and redraft. So I wanted to be a politician, and uh, I thought uh, I'd go to law school. So I didn't take the LSAT until February of my senior year and uh, got in law school and uh, got out of law school, went to work for a, a firm that tried cases at, in Lexington. And um, my one of the partners was a, a politician. He was a state uh, rep, and, and then he became a congressman. And uh, after being around him and seeing his lifestyle, uh, I enjoyed trying cases more and being a politician. So that's kind of how I went to law school. So I know you, you talked about when you graduated from law school, you were handling all types of cases and, and ultimately got into the, the products liability side of things. What is it about the products liability cases that appeals to you? Is it the challenge? Is it the risk? Is it the complicated nature of those cases? It, it's a little of both. Uh, when I was undergrad, I was a math major as an undergraduate, and uh, I was an engineer for a semester, and I just, it was boring, really boring, but I enjoyed the, the some of the areas, and especially mechanical. And so um, we just, we, a lot of, uh, of products obviously are seriously injured, and I always want to try to help people. And so um, I really enjoyed that aspect of trying to help people, but I also enjoyed the challenge uh, of trying to figure out what went wrong and uh, what could they have done better. And so it, it's every case is a challenge. You're going against the best lawyers in the country uh, on the other side. You're going against their experts, some of the best experts. And so... It, it was the, it's a series of helping people and the challenge and the challenge of the work and just trying cases uh, and having uh, to explain to a jury about these complex issues and trying to break it down so they can understand it. You know, it, it's, a, it's a really difficult practice with a lot at stake against pretty formidable defendants with a lot of money to fight you. What is it like in trial against... You know, some of these these big corporations. Well, it's a uh, it, it, uh, Kent and I always said when we first started out, we were uh, one loss away from bankruptcy. Uh, we figured if we lost a case that we'd be bankrupt because of the money you put put in it. So, our first five to ten years, um, it's for young lawyers. You have to be very frugal. Uh, your houses aren't very big, and you don't spend a lot of money because you're putting your money in. So you have to have confidence in yourself that that you can do this and that that um, you have to love trying cases and so that was always a challenge one of the well the largest verdict i ever got i couldn't get anybody to go with me to help me try it uh, except uh, uh, an associate 
and uh, we ended up going to Baltimore and, and getting a large verdict because they thought it was a terrible case and and um, some of the younger partners we had then and, and Kent, Kent had his cases, I had my cases and we had younger partners helping us and finally this associate went with me and, and uh, we had a great time in, in Baltimore. You know, it's one of the things that I, I think is that the public doesn't understand about the risks that trial lawyers take in terms of the, the money that they have to, you know, put into a case to make it a, a viable case. And, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that many of these cases would, would never see the courtroom without them being funded by law firms taking that, that huge risk. And, and, you know, that is an important part of the system that makes it all work. Yeah, it's, it, it is. And, and that's what, you know, we, we've, I've got a lot of good friends that have taken a lot of risk and, and won and lost a lot. Anybody tells you they've never lost a case, hadn't tried very many, if any, uh, because they are difficult. And um, uh, so you have to you have to really be careful picking cases. I mean, it, that's the, the name of this game. I always tell people the size of your house is directly proportionate to your ability to pick good cases because you pick a couple bad cases and you're going to have problems. And you spend three to six hundred thousand dollars on these cases um, and of your own money and um, there, there's a lot of risk there so you just have to really uh, people that take cases and think they're going to scare these companies into paying them money or, or they're going to be in for a rude awakening you you really have to pick good cases and a good case always starts with a good client uh, give me a good client and I'll, I'll take it and, and look at it very careful because that's what they're looking at. And I've always said, and thank goodness we're in a position that we just disengaged in a case the other day because I, 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 I couldn't get along with a client. And, and the client had expectations that uh, didn't match reality. And so uh, you have to really like your client. When you're in a case for two or three weeks, um, a jury can see if you really like your client or don't like your client. And, uh, and I had a a lawyer years ago told me that uh, juries take away money from people they don't like and they give money to people they like. And so uh, your client is really important. And, and and you have to work with your clients. Some of these clients uh, have been devastated and, and they're down, they're mad, and you have to take all of that out of them. You have to take out uh, this anger that they have, and, and rightfully so. I mean, their lives have been destroyed. And so you have to... Uh, have them when they you present them at trial, uh, be the kind of person that the jury's going to want to help, and be the kind of person that they want to help themselves. And uh, I always tell people that you know money can't get your health back, uh, but money can help them have a better life and a quality, better quality life. And so that's what you have to try to get to a jury is is that that they're helping this person have a better quality life. That's not the lottery. They're not catching, getting the lottery. That's a, that's a great segue into the next question I was going to ask you about, which is it's got to do with empathy. And that's one of the things that uh, is, is part of our core values for Synergy. And I really emphasize with new team members and highlight for them actually what happened to me when I was involved in an accident, how it completely changed my life and, you know, all the impacts from that and the idea of just making sure that they understand that 
every person that we're dealing with has been through something pretty significant or traumatic if if they're working with with synergy and i'm i'm and you sort of t- touched on it but i wanted to see if we could drill down a little bit on it which is yeah. you know, when you've got severely injured clients how do you yourself connect em- empathetically with them and what they've been through so that you you've got that feeling for when you're representing them well you've let me say one thing you've done a great job because the people that i work with at synergy all work with my clients extremely well and my clients like them uh, and they 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 get it but yeah it's you know i was talk about in in the void hour you know there's sympathy and empathy and and we can't have sympathy they've got all the sympathy they need from their family but infinitely uh, you 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 try to get them to understand what your clients are going through. I've, I've had a family tragedy, and uh, and I understand, you know, uh, not having a dad to be at your football games or weddings or those type of things, what, what that means to people and, and the loss. And I've had a lot of paras and quadriplegics um, who've lost the ability to just do basic things in their life. And... Uh, and so you have to un- understand how that, how you can translate that into a jury. And uh, we do daily living uh, activity videos and uh, use that with our life care planner to show just simple things that we just, you know, putting on your shoes, uh, going to the restroom, uh, getting dressed, uh, getting in a car. Uh, these things, we just jump in and take it for granted and and this is a is a day-long event for them you know it's an hour and a half to get ready it's a half hour to get in a vehicle um, and it's just things that we take for granted isn't and so you have you need to show the jury how this uh, money that you are asking them for is going to make this easier they're going to have equipment they're going to have vehicles that are handicap accessible they're going to have a house that's handicapped accessible. Just things like fitting a wheelchair through a door uh, that's too small. Uh, it's just things we don't think about that you have to show uh, a jury uh, because most of them haven't been exposed to this. I mean, there some have been uh, with a family member, but most haven't, and so they don't they don't have an idea of what these people go through just to get through the day, and um, especially quadriplegics who. Um, just have a you know very difficult time, and uh, I once asked one of my, uh, I'd ask her ahead of time, but ask her on the stand why'd she want to live like this, and she said she wanted to see her grandkids grow up, and so you have to let a jury know that these people are real, and they're in this. Uh, there's a reason why they want to go on living. Yeah, the the idea of winning the lottery is such a frustrating concept to hear people that really don't understand or haven't ever been through what I've seen over the last 20 years, clients I've worked with, you know, oftentimes they get thrown onto government assistance because most people don't have enough money when they're injured to take care of themselves. And, you know, they lose their job and they don't have healthcare coverage and they wind up on Medicaid. This idea you know, that even getting a million dollars is somehow the lottery when, you know, that person's future care can be $50 million. That million dollars is is a drop in the bucket. They still need Medicaid even after getting, 
you know, a million dollars. So that concept I'm sure is, is one that is so important when you're trying to connect with the jury and make sure that they understand, you know, what the client's been through and how this money is really truly necessary to help that client take care of themselves. Yeah. I had a a defense lawyer used that in his closing the lottery that our client was trying to win the lottery. It didn't work out too well for him. And so, um, it, it is people don't understand the, the amount of money it, it takes to take care of a person. Um, I had a client one time that was severely burned. He lost a leg and an arm. And um, I, we said, you know, you need 24-hour care. They hired a life care planner, came in, said he only needs 16. He didn't need anybody at night. And I said, what if there's a fire? And he said, well, he just needs to learn how to put his leg on quicker. And that didn't work out very well for him either. And so... That was a record verdict in the state of Maryland. Um, you just have to uh, understand um, how to present this, this this concept, and it's not sympathy. If you start trying to play sympathy, uh, juries will, they don't like that, and, and they'll punish you for that. But they want to know about your client. They want to know your client's story, your client's life, and what's this all about. And I always start out every trial by saying. To the jury and opening why are we here why are we here and we're here because and then to go through why we're here and and what you're asking them to do or going to ask them to do and so it, it's real important that you're honest and open with the jury um, don't stretch the truth if you do uh, you'll get punished for it and so you want to you want to be you want to build a, a rapport with the jury and someone that the jury can trust uh, when the evidence comes in uh, they can trust you that you're going to put on the whole story. So since you've, you've been practicing a few years, you may not have one singular case, but I'd love to, to hear you talk a bit about some of the most important or influential cases that you've handled and why they were important if they've effectuated um, change. Uh, it would be great to, to hear about that. Uh, I, the, the first case at McDowell Kawasaki was a, was a fairing bracket and, uh, it involved a, a, a car turning in front of a motorcycle, and and uh, the motorcycle, um, the, the, the gentleman's femur was just shattered. Um, they said it was because he hit the, the door of the car, uh, and everybody agreed it was 30 miles an hour, that it, it compressed the femur uh, and shattered it. We said the fairing bracket, which I called the dagger, it looked like a dagger, it's straight out, and I said, what happens when it turns around? And, um, and we compared the fairing bracket or with the dash of your car. And I asked their expert, if you put a dagger in front of a person in a, in a, on the, the dashboard, what, what grade, he taught engineering, I said, what grade would you give a student? And the weight was on. And finally said, you'd have to flunk him. And so this was when the internet just came out and um, it was amazing. Uh, Kent went on the internet and found a writing by their biomechanic who said the patella would break at 12 mile, or 19 miles an hour. Um, and this was 30 miles an hour, and the patella didn't break. So his question was, has the patella gotten stronger in the last six years when he wrote this article, or does it have to do with somebody who's paying you? And um, so that one came out. But the, the, the most famous case that we handled was Baker versus General Motors. And that was a case that involved a, a fiery crash where a 
man crossed the center line, hit our client. She was a passenger, a mother of two, and she burnt to death before they could get her out. And so we tried that case, and um, there was a General Motors employee named Elwell who had said that they could only spend $2 on any part on the fuel system. Uh, and then it was a let them burn letter. It was cheaper to pay death claims than it was to fix the problem. Uh, but he had an injunction against him. Uh, he had entered an agreement with General Motors and had an injunction that he couldn't in, in Michigan that he couldn't testify. And we ended up getting a large verdict. Eighth Circuit took it away. We appealed to, uh, at that time, the Supreme Court. Uh, we hired Lawrence Tribe to argue the case for us, and they had hired Kenneth Starr. So we had two kind of famous lawyers, and uh, we, uh, my partner was a congressman, and he introduced us to the Supreme Court, which was kind of nice. And, and we sat there, and you could tell pretty quick uh, who the hot judge was, and it was uh, RGB, and uh, she was phenomenal. And so uh, I remember walking down the hall, and Ken Starr called Lawrence over and uh, said, I'm too busy working on Whitewater. I don't have time to argue this case. And so um, through the argument, uh, it went uh, pretty well. And I, at one point, I turned over to my partner and I said, I think we've won. And the question was, uh, young man, I know you think I'm wrong. And I know you think the restatement of torts is wrong. But if we rule for you, Michigan rules the world. And I thought it was over. And it was a nine to nothing opinion. Uh, we got the case back. When we took the case, it was 11 years. When we took the case, these two little boys were hit me about my waist. And when it was over, they were taller than I was, both of them. And so um, we ended up resolving that case and, and changed their lives uh, for the better. But it took us 11 years. Both of my daughters have studied that case in law school. So that's kind of a, a fun case. It was a unbelievable experience. Lawrence Tribe was probably one of the smartest lawyers I've ever met. He, he was prepared. His, his notebook that he used for the argument was unbelievably well prepared. He was just, uh, he's, he was a class guy and, uh, and we were very happy to have him uh, have that decision uh, because it's so important that people not be able to silence people. Uh, corporations not be able to silence witnesses who come out and testify uh, and, and tell the truth of what went on and what what they really were doing and what they were hiding. And so if we don't have those kind of people come out, we're going to have a secretive uh, corporate world, and, and that's not going to be good for our clients. Yeah, the idea of corporations putting profits ahead of people, a, a small you know, investment that would prevent people from dying when they can calculate down to the penny how much they have to spend in lawsuits. And it's better to do that than to, to actually fix the, the problem. That's, to me, such an important function that trial lawyers perform is holding corporations accountable when they make decisions like that. Yeah. I, we just saw that in Texas with the grid. And uh, is. I think Bill Gates said it best. They just made a business decision. They just they decided they weren't going to spend money to have these. Uh, I mean, the windmills were doing fine in Canada and Alaska. Uh, and they froze in Texas. Uh, it, it's because they didn't spend the money. And uh, it's the same way with their gas plants. So 
what makes me sick of that is they just file for bankruptcy now, uh, these companies. And so it's going to be very difficult uh, for people to recover. And, um, and that's, that's just the easy way out, unfortunately. So I wanted to ask you a bit about your uh, leadership, because you've been a leader amongst product liability attorneys um, with your involvement with AIEG. What What's driven you in that regard? Why do you do that? Well, I was helped a lot uh, as a young lawyer. I, I remember going seeing Mo Levine and, and uh, Jerry Spence speak and share uh, their knowledge with with us and uh, and other famous lawyers doing that. And so, you know, when you when you get to a certain point, uh, you need to give back and you need to get, help the, the next generation of lawyers. I love teaching uh, young lawyers uh, and, and talking to them. I always tell people, you know, when I was a young lawyer, I didn't read novels. I read trial transcripts. I would go get a trial transcript from a really good lawyer and I'd read it. And I kept reading them. And after a while, you start to see the patterns. You start to see what uh, great lawyers do uh, to win their case. And so giving back that kind of knowledge uh, in, in whether it's Missouri Trial Lawyers or AHA or AIG, it's the sharing that, that's important. And, um, you know, there's not many new things. It's just, uh, it's just you need to do the right things and, and learn from people what works and what doesn't work. And... Um, and how to how to present uh, a case in a products case uh, you never talk about your case until you've gone through the product so that when the jury hears it they say what do you expect i mean what do you expect that the only three things they didn't know is the name of the victim they didn't know the date it was going to happen and they didn't know how bad they were going to be hurt but they knew there was going to have they're going to have problems because of the product so it's that type of uh of learning process and, and sharing uh, that everyone does. Uh, we all learn all the time. And sharing that is so important. And, and AIG, if you're going to do a products, uh, you, it, it's a must because you learn about what's happened in other cases. Uh, seldom will you ever get a case that you're the first one. There's always somebody else that's got one. And you need to know about it. And, and um, I couple years ago, a huge, uh, one of my friends took a deposition of one of the leading experts, biomechanics that the car companies use, and he held himself out as an MD. Come to find out, uh, when he, he went, he got his, uh, M, he said MD from Sweden, and when uh, my friend went over to Sweden, he found out it was a PhD. The guy had gone to class two times in seven years, and um, uh was not licensed to practice medicine in Sweden or anywhere else. And uh, so when, you, when you've got him on multiple transcripts and he's an MD, uh, you, they got problems. He's got real problems today. But it's things like that uh, that you find out. Um, and um, just where, where they've been excluded for certain things in different trials. Uh, it's just those are types of tips that you have to have uh, to be successful. And sharing is what it's all about. You know, aside from those opportunities, can you talk about why organizations like AJ and the state level trial or associations are so important and so important in what your involvement in those organizations has meant to you over time? 
Well, that's that's where you learn. I mean, that's where you learn the AJ. You go there, and and it's just a a wealth of they've got all kinds of things you can learn. Whether it's opening statements or void our closing, cross examining and and putting on experts, uh, it, it, it's where you learn. It, it's where you learn. And and the other thing those organizations do uh, is that they are active politically. Uh, one of my biggest concerns right now is that I see tort reform all over the United States starting up again in, in state level, not the federal level, but state level. And uh, they're taking away people's rights that people don't even know. Um, putting on things like statute of repose 10 years. In, you know, in 10 years, a car isn't worthless. I mean, the cars, it, it, there shouldn't be a statute of repose on cars. Because what happens is those 10-year-old cars are kept passing down and they're passed down to kids. That's who drives them. And so now you're saying, well, they're not going to be able to recover. And so the burden shifts on supporting those people that are seriously injured from the manufacturer that created a defective car to the government who we're all paying taxes on. And so it's just a matter of, of, uh, again, making business decisions uh, instead of decisions on safety. They're just, it's, uh, there's there's got to be a balancing act. So I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the business of the practice of law. You've built an incredibly successful law firm that um, operates in, in multiple states from a business aspect. What do you think is the most important thing for lawyers to understand about operating a law firm? It, it, it's a business and it's got to be managed and uh, and lawyers are terrible business managers I, uh, there's I don't know many that are very good business managers so we used to hire uh, Kent and I and and we just we didn't do a very good job and so we hired a business manager who was a retired banker he had 250 employees under him so he knew how to interview and how to, to spot them and we were over 60 employees now and it's, uh, he has done a marvelous job. Uh, our, our paralegals, most of them are all college graduates. They're, they're bright. They could go to law school if they wanted to. All of them could. They're just bright and they're dedicated. And we find that if, if a person doesn't like this work, they usually get out within three to six months. They're gone. But we've had employees stay for a long time. And, uh, and, he has a great job of doing that. The other thing I think it's important, and we did this a couple years ago, and that is we brought in an outside person, and he evaluated, and we had meetings with him and with our staff, and we started looking at you know, diversification. Uh, when the car companies, Chrysler and General Motors, went bankrupt, 08, 09 time frame, we had about 90% plus auto industry, auto cases only. And we only lost on one case because we could sue dealers in Missouri, which was, was good. But we decided we needed to diversify. And so this gentleman that we brought in uh, has talked to us about even more diversification, uh, more systems, putting systems in place so that you measure things and, uh, and that, you do, uh, that you're doing the right thing not only to uh, work the business up, but also get the business in. And so it, it's, I think it's a business. If you've got enough ability hiring somebody that is in banking or in business that runs it 
as a business understands how to hire people because you're only as good as your employees. Uh, you're, you're, they're, you're only as good as the staff you have around you and they can make or break you. You can be a great trial lawyer, but if you don't have support staff, you're not going very far. And so that that is the, the business part has changed a great deal, I think, and since I've started out. And so uh, back in the day when you're doing everything, you're just really just not tracking anything. You're not, back then, We nobody advertised. You know, there weren't any specialties. Uh, it just really was, you just went in and, and practiced and, and uh, did things and hope they work out, but it's changed. It's great advice. You know, we, we've done that. We've brought in outsiders to help us. And I think as, as anyone that's operating a business, which as you said, law firm is, is operating a business that idea of tracking and metrics and developing all that it's, it's tough work, but boy, it, it lets you drill down and see exactly where your weaknesses are and what you need to focus on for sure. In our business, it, it's about relationships. I mean, we get 95% or more, maybe even 98% of our business from other lawyers' referrals. And so there's, you can either advertise and get your cases or you can get referrals. And um, and so it's about building relationships. So you've got to be conscious about that, and, and, and that has to be a, a business. I mean, you have to make a systematic effort to try to talk to people, let them know what you do, let them know how you can help them. Uh, we have young lawyers that want to help us with the trial and, and you know, help with the, with the part. And we're more than happy to, to let them help and, and be a part of it and to learn because that's how I learned. I really I had a couple lawyers in Kansas City that I would take cases. My senior partner after uh, my con- the congressman left, uh, he did not want to spend any money and he didn't want to take any risk. Um, he would rather write a will than work on a $100,000 PI case. And so I would take him to the city, and uh, the deal was I, the, the gentleman that I worked under would let me help with the case, and I learned tremendous amounts from that. And so we've had really some good young lawyers who come and bring us a case, and they work with us, and now they're doing their own. And so it's just a, it's a learning process uh, that, that you do. And... Uh, you share risk so you don't have all the risk yourself. So after uh, 40 plus years of practicing law, are there any learnings that you would share with young lawyers who are starting their firms uh, based on learn the experiences you've had? Case. Learn how to pick good cases. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot that goes into that. Number one is a client. If you've got a good client, you, you know, you're, that, that's a long way. And then you have to figure out what the problems are. I mean, whether it's a truck case or, a, a, or just a car wreck, um, you figure out your liability and then figure out your damages. Um, and so if it's a products case, then you have to really start looking, has this happened before? I mean, that, that's that's the one thing a jury would go back in the back room. The first thing they say, owner, how often this happens? And so if you've got even five uh, other OSIs, other similar instances, uh, that's great. And so you want to know, has there been a recall? Um, you know, one of the things we face all the time is uh, we met the government standards. Well, they're minimum. Uh, we, we have a lot of seatback failures. We're seeing that where people are pairs or quads or the children behind them are brain damaged because the seat collapses. And 
people don't understand that your seat back is your lap belt and or your show, your belting system and airbags uh, in a rear impact. So you don't if you have a rear impact and your seat stays up, you're going to walk away from it. Uh, you can take 40 G's in your back, uh, but if you uh, the pressure on your head down, if you get in the back seat where you hit your head, it only takes two G's to break your neck. And so try to explain that to a jury and so that they understand that, uh, that, that that's so important to ha have that done. Uh, how many of those have happened in, in other cases? So, you know, young lawyers need to look at that. And that's why you belong to AIG and, and AAJ, because they, they keep those statistics, uh, those cases. And so uh, you know if you have a case or not. And so just being able to pick cases um, and, and be able to work them up. The one thing I think is so important there are a lot of people that are afraid to go to the courtroom, and uh, the defendants know that. And if you don't, even if you get beat, if you at least go in and put on a good trial, you're going to be respected uh, by the defendant. They know that you're going to, you're willing to go try a case. And if you're not willing to go try a case, you're not going to be able to settle many cases uh, for fair value. So you have to learn. If you're going to do this work, you have to learn how to try the case, and you have to be willing to go do it. Uh, and, and be able to pick a jury, uh, be able to present evidence and put on a, a cohesive case uh, in with that, that you have to be able to get, put the case on that a jury can understand. What are the most difficult parts of your law practice today? It's, it's always the business aspect. I mean, practicing, trying cases is, is, and working on cases is the fun part. It's the business part, but you can't, you, you, you have to run a business to be effective. I mean, to be a trial lawyer, you still have to run the business. You, you can't go broke practicing law, uh, and, and you can if you don't treat it as a business. So you have to look at that, and you have to. Uh, expertise you don't have, you need to go hire, because um, hiring is number one, and, and you have to know how to manage, and then you, you just have to be able to train your staff uh, the way you want them trained, and to be there. Uh, when you're in a trial, if you don't have a, a paralegal uh, that knows what they're doing, that knows how to find documents and put them up in a, in a cohesive way, um, you're going to have problems. Uh, and so you just, you have to, you have to train staff, but it's always the business aspect is the hardest, but it's the most important from the standpoint of keeping your firm afloat and uh, keep going. Uh, you know, Kent and I are, are very proud. We've never had to lay anybody off. We've never missed a payroll. Uh, and to me, that's that's really important because they're like your family. And uh, through the pandemic, uh, we actually hired people. We were busy. And so we've, we've done really well during the pandemic and we've kept all our employees employed. Uh, they got raises and bonuses and so uh, th those are types of things I'm proud of because we're, we're, these these people have, work for us have families and so they depend on us and and we depend on them so it's a it's a business uh, and it's we call it it's a family business uh, because these people are like our family. Like you, I'm I'm incredibly proud that we we kept hiring people and were able to continue to grow during this you know probably the most difficult time. Um, in the past 30, 40 years in business. And you know, that 
that idea of family is one that we hold very dear here and important because we want to make sure that, you know, ultimately we have a strong family that believes in the mission, delivers ultimately on what we want, which is, you know, making sure that we are positively impacting any injury victim or trial lawyer that works with us. So that that concept really resonated with me because I think that, that that's so important uh, to have that sort of culture and atmosphere within your firm. Um, I know you talked about the importance of picking cases and you know, going in and actually trying cases. What do you credit with the success of your law firm? Is it those things or is it other other things that we haven't talked about? Well, I, I think hard work, uh, you know, is part of it. Um, uh, you, you have to balance that with having a family. Um, we used to work, when I started out, half day Saturdays. Uh, we worked half day Christmas Eve. And I said, if I ever got to take this firm over, we're not, nobody's working Christmas Eve. And we're not working Saturdays unless you need to work Saturdays. If you got a trial, you work Saturdays. If you don't, you, you're with your family. And so, um, you know, we, we always t- <laughs> joked it was an 80-20 rule. It was 80% of your time was producing 20% of your income and 20% produced 80. Uh, and so that's why we really started focusing in on just doing PI work because it, the other stuff was just taking too much time up. And we found we became more efficient had more time for our families and uh, and yet got the work done. And so when you have a trial, it's 24-7. And uh, when you don't have a trial, you, you need to, to work in moderation to get it done. And so that balancing act is, uh, is always important. And you'll burn out in this business if you don't take time off and take vacations and, and do things to, to, to just relax and, and have some downtime. Yeah, disconnecting and decompressing, particularly, you know, when you're dealing with these catastrophic injuries, it's, it can be overwhelming to see the kind of pain and suffering that people have been through and then the pressure of trying to make sure that ultimately you secure justice for those people without, you know, being able to disconnect some, it, it, it can, it can wreak havoc. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's, it, it, I tell people that pay me for my hobby. Um, and I'm, I, uh, I hope I'm able to do this a long time, but I, I really enjoy uh, the interaction, not only with the clients, but with lawyers. And, uh, and being around other lawyers is, is, is always fun. So it, it's just really a great profession. I mean, you either love it or you get out of it. And because uh, you, it's, it's work and it's a challenge. But uh, I, I love doing it. I don't, there's, it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, you know, I, I've got a law firm that's separate from Synergy where I, I work with clients protecting their government benefits, but I also do a little bit of litigation with Medicaid liens here in Florida. And I love that aspect of getting to do those sorts of things, even though, you know, I've got a, a pretty large company that, that I'm running with, with Synergy. It, it, it is nice to absolutely get those those opportunities to work directly with clients and you know, feel that impact and also work with other lawyers. Uh, in my Medicaid lien hearings that I do, I get to work with the trial lawyer, an expert as a lawyer, and the other lawyers that are involved. So it's kind of nice to, to still be able to get that uh, while doing something else uh, that's connected to the law, but not exactly the practice of law. So I, I, 
I get that. Um, curious, you know, you being in the products liability area and with all the technology that is evolving with cars, um, I'm wondering if you guys are going to have your eyes on things that are possibly going to change the practice of law or disrupt sort of how things are done today because of technology. Could be technology in cars, could be, you know, rideshare with Ubers. You know, now people are getting into cars that, you know, are, are operated by an Uber driver and you've got that extra layer of complexity. I'm wondering, you know, ha how that might impact you guys or even driverless cars or, you know, Teslas that can drive them themselves in, in theory, you know, how, how will that change things? Well, I'm glad you asked that because this is one of my pet peeves. Uh, I think we're headed for disaster. Um, they're underreporting the wrecks that these driverless cars have. You know, California said you got to have a steering wheel and a brake and a gas pedal so you can override if something happens. So they go to Arizona and Texas, which say, no, you don't. Um, the Tesla, uh, individual was decapitated when the Tesla viewed the underneath of an 18 wheeler as open space. Um, they've run over people. Uh, these, uh, driverless cars have run over people. Um, I am for technology on like large trucks. They've got the ability to stop and, and do away with rear impacts, which would be phenomenal. I mean, they've got the technology to, they, they're in some trucks now. I'm for that. The driverless car I've got a problem with because here's here's what's going to happen. You're going to have an 18-wheeler go down uh, the main street in Chicago on Michigan Avenue during St. Pat's Parade and run over tons of people. They're going to be used as weapons. And how do they do that? They hack into it. These uh, We've asked them not to put them on the grid, but they're going to put them on the grid, and people are going to be able to hack them from foreign countries and you're going to have some disasters. And I'm wondering who's the first person in Congress is going to say that's my fault. Uh, because it is a major problem, and, and AIG is very worried about this. Um, it, we're not there. We're, we're not there with the technology to keep people from hacking and keep people, keep these cars from uh, seeing people in crosswalks and running over them. Uh, and it just, it's going to be a disaster. I. Our goal is put us put us out of business. I mean, put ourselves out of business, make them so safe we don't have any wrecks. Uh, I don't know if that'll happen in my lifetime or not, but uh, you know, I, I think technology is wonderful. I just think they need to think this through very carefully uh, to prevent people from hacking in. And they've already hacked uh, the Teslas. I mean, they've hacked them, and they can make them do whatever they want them to do. And it's just when you don't have an override system in there. Uh, it's it's a problem, and, but I am all for this uh, avoidance system where you know it senses the car stopped in front of you and it stops. And those who have worked, especially in eighteen wheelers, very well. We have a couple of cases we're suing now where uh, they just ran right in the back of our clients and, and their quads uh, because the seat broke because they hit it so hard. And so those are types of things that you know need to be fixed. Uh, but driverless, I'm really skeptical. I mean, the goal is is they want everybody to not have a car. They just pick you up and take you where you want, and you just pay the, the freight on it. And uh, I, I just I'm not there yet. I'm not there. So we'll we'll see how this plays out. Yeah, as a cyclist, you know, using the roads with cars, you know, it's scary because 
you know, I got hit by a driver that wasn't paying attention. But, you know, the flip side of that too is that if the technology is not safe with driverless, that it could be just as dangerous, if not a lot more dangerous, particularly, as you said, if it could be hacked or, you know, if the technology fails and doesn't recognize a human being in the roadway, um, you know, those sorts of things are, are things that, you know, hopefully the the technology is going to be such that it's deployed in a in a safe way. But the problem is, is, you know, just like a, a lot of other situations where, you know, corporations put, put profits ahead of people, you know, that, that's where there's probably a significant amount of risk here with, with that technology being deployed before it truly has the safety net that needs to be there to make sure that people don't get hurt. It, it's Cars are safer because of us. I mean, they, they, there's no question they're safer because of us, because uh, we've changed, we've made them change. Uh, we've made them change the f- fuel systems. We've made them change, you know, airbags. And I mean, this Dakota thing was a, was a disaster where they wanted a $10 airbag and so instead of you, gases are very expensive uh, on, on the others. So they use the same stuff that they use to blow up uh, the same material, chemical that they use to blow up the Oklahoma City courthouse. And it's very volatile. Uh, they're still out there. They can't recall them all because they don't have enough airbags to replace them. So people are driving around with time bombs in their car and, and don't know it. And so we've had a number of those cases where people are just been destroyed because of it. And uh, um, so I, I'm just not, I'm a little skeptical, uh, and I'm very fearful that these driverless trucks, especially, uh, they can do great damage. Uh, they can be used as a missile, basically, to kill uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, at an event by just running in. Who's going to stop an 80-mile-an-hour uh, truck going through the streets? I mean, who's going to stop it? Um, and so those are kind of things that, that uh, we're going to have to really take a serious look at and, and make sure, not just say, trust me, but we're going to need to make sure that it's going to work and that you can't, uh, can't hack it and, and, uh, and that it's going to be able to stop it. It's going to be able to deceive pedestrians uh, in the road um, or motorcycles or, or bikes as well. So uh, I'm... I'm not against technology. I'm not against you know moving forward. I'm just uh, I think loss of human life is very important, and um, I think that at least the highest the highest priority, and then we can figure out what we're going to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, final question: um, you, You've been practicing a few years, so I'm sure things have changed over the years as it relates to issues that arise at settlement like liens and Medicare and Medicaid and, you know, helping clients, uh, on the back end, make sure that their settlements are protected. Just curious, you know, are, are there things that you're seeing today in your practice as it relates to those sorts of issues that, um, are significant? Well, that's why we're hiring you. I, this thing has become so complicated, uh, that as, as a lawyer, I don't feel People, I mean, I, I want to know the problems, but I don't know the answers. And um, and it's uh, it's not fair to your client to try to do some of this stuff when you're not getting them the best results. So um, I, I think it's very important uh, to understand that there is a problem. 
we had a case now that is an unusual case, but the tax consequences are tremendous. And we've actually hired a professor at Harvard who's one of the leading in tax experts just to try to solve the problem because it is a super complex that involves uh, millions and millions of dollars in tax possibilities. And so when you have these problems, you need to hire people uh, that know how to solve them because it's, um, it, it's, it, you want to be fair to your client and these liens are getting worse. I, I wish I had a business where I could charge you a premium and then when you recovered, you paid it all back to me and I didn't have to give you the premium back. That, that's a great business. And, yeah. and these arrest liens are a nightmare. And I, I think it's the worst bill ever passed. Uh, it was an insurance giveaway where they're sitting there, they, they charge premiums and know they're going to make money. But then when th then they have an opportunity to recover all their money back and still have the premium. I mean, it's just, uh, but if you don't understand ERISA liens, you, you're going to be in trouble. And, uh, and Medicare and Medicaid are getting more complicated all the time. And so it's, uh, and each state's different. Uh, you know, you got some states got the made whole rule and you can negotiate like crazy and some you don't. And so when you go to different venues, you better know what the law is and uh, you better hire somebody that knows what they're doing or you're going to have trouble. So that's, uh, and in, in this pandemic, uh, we've, we have some uh, automobile manufacturers have settled cases for fair prices even though we know we can't go to trial, we hope we start trying cases in 2022. That's what we're planning on, and I'm hoping that'll work. But, uh, and some car companies aren't paying. They just aren't pay. Uh, insurance companies, <coughs> we have found, are paying. They're just business as usual. But it's, uh, as a trial attorney, you just, you, you've taken a year and a half off is what it's going to be. And then criminal cases get preference, so that's going to be a push. And so it's, it's uh, it's going to be an interesting 2022 is going to be a busy year for trial lawyers uh, that do personal injury work. It's going to be busy. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, the the backlog that I've heard in different venues. Thankfully, Florida has not been too bad, but you know, I've heard you know six to twelve months just to get a, a minor settlement approved in certain jurisdictions, much less get a trial. So you know that that backlog is when it starts to, to unwind should mean a lot of a lot of busy lawyers across the country trying to get justice ultimately for their clients. Yeah, it's it's going to be busy. It, it it's going to be a busy thing. It's going to take a couple of years to catch up, and uh, but it it is what it is, and we've gone through it, and I, I hope we see the light in the tunnel and and can get through this. Uh, it's been a horrible situation. Yeah, yeah. And to your point, you know, on the the issues at settlement, I, I that was one of the reasons that led me to to write the book I wrote, just to give lawyers that sort of guide and background to issue spot. Because, you know, expecting uh, a trial lawyer whose job really is to maximize the recovery and represent the the injury injury victim zealously you know, shouldn't be expected to know the nuances of ERISA or, you know, get into the Medicare regs and, you know, know the state-to-state -state variances on Medicaid liens and, you know, eligibility for different programs. I mean, all of that is, it's it's an overwhelming amount of information. So, you know, to, to not have experts 
uh, whether it's a company like ours or others that are out there working with clients, it, it really is a risk to a law firm to, to not have at least a firm that they're consulting with, working with, to make sure that ultimately they they can protect their clients as best as possible from from lien holders, from you know being being denied care by Medicare or Medicaid, and you know everything that goes with protecting the actual recovery as well. Th those are such critical issues. You know, we, we call it the case after the case because really there's a lot going on even after that case gets resolved where the number's been reached, but everything after that's, there's a lot to do. Yeah, it's, it, I, I enjoyed your book. And, 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 and again, it's just spotting issues. In other words, you, you have to know what you don't know and, and you have to take care of what you, you don't know. I mean, you can't, you can't put your firm on the line. You may have to end up paying it if you don't, uh, don't uh, get it resolved. And so it, it's critical to understand, and it's it's so much more complicated than when I started. I mean, we didn't even talk about liens. Uh, you know, there were, there weren't any, and so now there's liens everywhere, and so it, it's it's important to understand those and how's the best way to to negotiate them and, and get them done. So that, that's been uh, it's 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 just something you got to take care of. You got to really watch and take care of. Absolutely. Uh, so, Bob, if any listeners would like to get in contact with you, want to work with your firm on a co-counsel basis or refer a case to you, how's the best way for them to, to reach out to you? The best way is, is just through email. Um, we Several years ago, we were lucky to get a, an email address, and it's, it's our first name, all lowercase, Bob, at L-E, as in Emerson, lelaw.com so it's just bob at lelaw.com kent lelaw.com it's just our first name with lelaw.com so that's the best way and uh to get a hold of us and we'll add that into the show notes so when somebody goes to the website they'll be able to to do that and we'll connect to your website too so listeners can go to your website and learn more about your firm um, i want to thank you for joining me today very much appreciate it and um We'll look forward to the next episode of Trial Lawyer View. Thanks for having me. I, I'm always interested to talk to young lawyers. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Lawyer View. You can find more at triallawyerview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.